He is a good, good father. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to thank Jeremy also uh, for stepping in to direct the choir uh, this morning. Again, Mitzi's a little under the weather. Uh, so again, just grateful for everyone in the choir, the band uh, this morning for all their faithful service and for leading us uh, in a just wonderful, wonderful worship that I hope uh, blessed your heart and soul this morning. Uh, John chapter 7 is where we'll continue to pick up in our series, Come and See, uh, John chapter 7, uh, verse 1, and as you're turning, uh, to those who have siblings, do you have sibling rivalry? Gabe's like, yeah. Yeah, parents that have multiple kids, do your kids have sibling rivalry? Yes, they do. Uh, it is a, a pretty natural thing for siblings uh, to try to outdo each other. Uh, you've heard my story in the past about my brother and I deciding to race on a track. He was in loafers, I was in tennis shoes, which ended badly for him as he slid feet first across the finish line. Uh, months of picking asphalt out of his leg. But he won the race, right? You know, uh, Today, he and I still compete against each other on a new number of ways, cooking. I cook better than him. I'm just at all just better than him in just about every way. I, I was sitting here thinking about it this morning. There's really nothing. Well, he might be better at math than me, but that's questionable too. But he does it every day. But there's that sibling rivalry, trying to one-up each other and uh, he was a football player nine years before I was a football player because we're almost a decade apart. And so my goal in life wasn't really to go to college to play football. It was just to be better than him. You know, that's, that, was my, that was my goal. Because it's that sibling rivalry. Uh, I'm quick, as his brother, to point out his deficiencies, uh, as some of the other siblings are. Uh, and I say that to say this. Jesus is going to have an interaction with his brothers today. And there is a, even though not from Jesus to his brothers, there is a sense from his brothers to him, just a little bit of sibling rivalry. Which, by the way, makes sense if your brother's Jesus, right? Because they're never going to be better than him at anything. I mean, Mary's walking around. I've probably used this before. Mary sees like the vase that grandma gave her on the floor in pieces. Immediately, she's, I know Jesus didn't do it, you know, because he didn't, you know, he was perfect. Uh, out in the carpentry shop learning a trade with Joseph. Jesus' rocking chair is far superior than his brother James or the others, right? They're never going to live up to Jesus' standards as his family. So we're going to see a little interaction with that today. Uh, but again, it all goes back to this purpose that John is, is giving us. The purpose of the gospel is that we would believe in Jesus. And so as John is writing these stories, and as John writes this interaction, the primary goal is, hey, believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, because that is the only way you can have life. It is the only way that you can have eternal life. And so this whole series is come and see. Come and see who Jesus is. Come and see what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Come and see what Jesus says. Come and see how Jesus can transform our lives. Come and see how we can be forgiven and restored. Now, if all that is the background, which I remind you of all that every week, chapter 7 
8 and 9 are one big unit of time. Those three chapters are surrounding, and I'll, I'll explain what this is in just a little bit. They're surrounding and they're taking place in and around the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, it's taking place roughly September and October, uh, the fall time of year. And what we're really going to begin to see is growing opposition to Jesus. If you think back to how chapter 6 ended, Jesus had, yeah, go back all the way to chapter 5, really, 5,000 people had been fed. We get in, or chapter 6, 5,000 people have been fed. He walks on water. The next morning, the people show up for more food. They want their bellies to be full, and Jesus says, it's time to take you to the next level of your faith. It's time to take you deep into God's word. It's time to, to, to call you to a commitment. And so the bulk of the last part of chapter 6 is Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He talks about you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he goes through these symbolic things about how he is the Savior. And at the end of it, again, he's got like a megachurch, thousands of people following him. At the end of that discourse, the end of that teaching, most of them walk away. They're like, you know what? We just came for, a Mc, for, for like a, a, I don't even know what McDonald's has for breakfast, a McBacon and egg. I don't know. We came for that, a McMuffin. We didn't want the teaching. We didn't want to be called to a commitment. So a lot of his people have left. And with that, the opposition to Jesus really begins to grow. The opposition started back at the end of chapter 5. Uh, where it says that the Jews begin, or this is why the Jews began to try to kill him more. Chapter 5, remember, quick, we got to do a quick review. Chapter 5, Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath. He has claimed equality with the Father. The religious leaders, the elite, they're like, we can't have this guy. He's a blasphemer. They start to try to kill him. Immediately after that, Jesus heads up north. And he stays up north in Galilee. And that's where he is today. He stays in Galilee for about a year. In fact, if you want to know what he does, you can read the other three Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus their Gospels on the Galilee ministry of Jesus. So while Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath in chapter 5, he has now spent roughly a year, maybe a year and a half, up in the north, up in Galilee. And that's where we pick up kind of chapter 7 today the first two verbs we'll just like we did last week kind of just walk through the passage verses one and two after this jesus traveled in and around galilee since he did not want to travel in judah because the jews were trying to kill him the jewish festival of shelters or tabernacles or booths was near so jesus now has spent this time in galilee he has spent this time with the poorer people of Israel. By the way, we, we would see this. Uh, the best comparison I have is what northerners think of southerners in America. You, you know what I'm talking about? We're kind of the podunk southern people. That's not true, but that's the stereotype we get. You know, we're, we're just the farmers. We're the simple people, the uneducated people. Galilee is in the north. They're the simple people. They're the rednecks of Israel, right? Yeah, they're the low class. They're not... The people down in the, the, the south, they're the sophisticated city people, right? And so Jesus has stayed up there with that group of people, and the, it, the, John says, hey, the Feast of Shelters is here. Now, how many of you are looking forward to the fall? 
Pumpkin spice. Krispy Kreme's got the donuts. Anybody? Pumpkin spice. Uh, I've never had pumpkin spice in my life. Can you believe that? Never had it. But I hear it's delicious. Uh, and each year, like, pumpkin spice is going to start in probably August next year when it's 120 degrees outside. But hey, we're going to celebrate fall. Okay, this is fall. The fall season is starting. The Feast of Shelters is like the most um, excitement of the nation of Israel throughout the, the year. Uh, there's three major uh, pilgrimage feasts, so to speak. You've got Passover, really important. We've talked about that. You've got Pentecost. But the one that everybody really gets excited about is the Feast of Booths. Like it's a party in Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know why, because they build tents and they sleep in tents for a week. Anybody like to camp? Ever been camping? I went to the Appalachian Trail one time, okay, as a youth. And so me and my buddy, I, I probably told this. A lot of these stories I'm starting to repeat. I've been your pastor long enough, but I don't remember anymore. And you probably don't either, so it's okay. So we, we were camping on the Appalachian Trail, and me and my buddy were in our tent. And we, we were just chowing down on some beef jerky, you know, just... You, Everybody was trying to go to sleep, and we're just chowing down on some really good beef jerky. So we got tired. We, we set an open bag of beef jerky outside the tent, underneath kind of the rain canopy, but just outside the tent. The next morning, my friend, I, I was a pretty heavy sleeper. I didn't know this was going on. My friend's like, Trent, wake up, wake up. There's a bear trying to attack the tent. And I'm like, Shut up, go to sleep. That's, that's a bad one. That's what I said. And he's just shaking. And so I noticed that our tent is rocking back and forth. And I'm like, oh, maybe there is a bear trying to attack our tent. This is before cell phones, so we can't really call anybody. He's like, should we yell for our youth pastor? He's like, no, no, we'll take care of this. He unzips the tent. I'm like, what are you doing? There could be a bear. Luckily for us, deer. I'm glad it wasn't deer jerky. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, so, so it was fun. They're actually really tame. Uh, we got out, and they kind of scurried around. They had hung out around the campsite all night. Uh, we actually did feed them a piece of jerky, which just made more of them show up. So that was probably a mistake. But, you know, the, so, so the Feast of Booths, I tell that story because that's what these, these, the Jewish people do for a week. They camp. They build these little tent structures, these little booth structures and that's where they live for a week. Uh, if you're a, a rural kind of person out in the countryside, you build it in your field. If you live in the city, you build it on top of your flat roof. And that's where they live for a week. They rough it to commemorate the 40 years of roughing it in the wilderness when Moses was leading them. Echoes of Exodus all through John, as we've been talking about since chapter 6. So that, but it's a joyful celebration. It starts on a Sunday, ends, or the Sabbath, which is probably sundown Friday, sundown Saturday. Starts on Sabbath, ends on Sabbath. Starts with a huge party, ends with a huge party, worship service party. It is a time where they look back at their history. They look at their present conditions and what God is doing amongst them now. And they look to the future. They look to the future of a coming Messiah. So there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of hope, it's a, a lot of thanksgiving. The atmosphere is electric in Jerusalem. College football season's starting, I mean, you go, you go to NC State, Carolina, any of these big football stadiums, that's the atmosphere in Jerusalem. It's absolutely electric and it's filled with worship. 
It is also a time of celebration because the fruit and olive harvest has ended. So they're thanking God for the harvest that he has blessed them with. If you were going to make an impact or a splash, this is the time you do it. If the Messiah was going to reveal himself to the majority of Israel, this is the time that you would do it. Because most people are in Jerusalem and they're celebrating. So I think that's what leads to this interaction in verses 3 through 5. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judah, so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even, and then the parenthetical, not even his brothers believed in him. There's a lot to unpack in these small verses. Our first one is they want him to go to Jerusalem to reveal himself. But I think at the heart of really what's going on is they're mocking him because they don't believe in him. They're kind of making fun of their brother. They're like, oh, you think you're the Messiah? Prove it. Well, we've seen that. It could be that they've noticed that the large crowd of people that used to follow Jesus around have left, and his brothers are like, hey, Jesus, we're taking over the campaign. You and these 12 guys have just lost a third of your following, two-thirds of your following. We're taking over, and we're going to start in Jerusalem. I don't know. But I know they don't believe. I know they don't believe him as a Messiah. They might believe he can do some wondrous things and some tricks or magic or whatever they think. But they don't see him as Lord. This is a very important point, a very important principle I think we can get from this. Proximity to Jesus does not always equal a profession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. See what I'm saying? I want you to see that. Proximity or closeness to Jesus doesn't necessarily equal a profession of faith or confessing him as Lord and Savior. There's nobody else who would have been as close to Jesus for the entirety of his life than his brothers. They would have shared a room together. They would have bunked together. They would have worked together. They would have harvested together. They would have built rocking chairs together. Nobody else would have seen him or heard him or talked to him throughout the entirety of his life than his brothers. You couldn't have gotten any closer. And they don't believe. They don't believe in him at all. With everything they've seen, with everything that they've heard, they don't believe. Listen, there's people who grow up in the church their whole life. There's some who have been in the church since before they were born. There's some who have been to every single service ever when the doors of any church are open. There are some who read their Bible faithfully and they have memorized it and studied it and they know more about it than I do. They are close to Jesus. There are some who have Christian friends. There are some who uh, their whole life surrounds Christianity. There are teenagers who are so involved in ministries and youth and they do this and do that, they can't get any closer to Jesus. Yet 85% of teenagers are not seen in church when they graduate high school. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one is proximity doesn't always equal a profession of faith. Being close to Jesus 
or being active in church activities or having your name on a Sunday school role, a church role, uh, those things, it doesn't mean you've professed him as Lord and Savior. And that's something we have to wrestle with in our hearts. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit convicts you and leads you and gives you assurance if you've made that decision. But if you haven't, it's his brothers. There are church people, good people, who have never made a profession of faith. Maybe they've joined a church. But pro- and there's a lot of people who rest on that. They sit there and it's like, well, I've been to church since before I was born. They rest on their closeness, but it doesn't always equal a profession of faith. Now, I want to flip it. A profession of faith absolutely will equal proximity. When you profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're absolutely going to be close to him. You're absolutely going to study his word. You're absolutely going to go to church. You're absolutely going to do those things because you're, he is the Lord of your life. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a food provider. He's the master. And you want to be close to him because you want to do everything he says and strive to be more and more like him as, as our master. So proximity to Jesus does not always equal a profession of faith, but profession always equals proximity to Jesus, to fellowship together, to be with him. And so the question is, have we really professed Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have we really made that decision? Have we really been forgiven? Now, there's a little bit of hope that I want to share with you. We know for a fact that one of these brothers, James, will become a Christian. James, he's called James the Just in history. He's the brother of Jesus. He will, after the resurrection, after seeing Jesus resurrected, he will surrender his life to Jesus. He will make a profession of faith. And actually, James becomes the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Which is fascinating, right? None of the 12 become the lead pastor. James, the brother of Jesus, will become the lead pastor in the Jerusalem church. And I tell you that to say this. There's hope for everybody to make a profession of faith. Family members who struggle, who family members who won't make a profession of faith, family members that you're praying for, don't lose hope, don't give up. There's always hope. That coworker who you're trying to minister to, don't give up. There's always hope that they will make that profession of faith. There's always hope that the Spirit will work and convict and that they will make a profession of faith. Don't ever lose hope on anybody. Jesus never turned his back on his brothers, even though this is very much sibling rivalry and they're very much mocking him and somewhat making fun of him and questioning him. He never turns his back on him. In fact, he talks to him and he tries to uh, clarify some of their misunderstandings. Look at how this ends in verses 6 and 10. Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. 
And after he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. The first thing he clarifies to his brothers is that he fully that Jesus fully understands God's timing. Right? He fully understands God's timing. Everything has to be orchestrated and followed exactly like God has set forward. Jesus has known since he was probably a child that he is on a collision course with the cross. He has known that's his purpose, to die for the sins of the world. And yet he says, my time is not yet come. It's not time for them to kill me. That time is coming, probably a year, year and a half from this point. But there's st- God still has work for me to do. God still has things for me to do. There are still people I have to minister to, my brothers. There's still people that need to be healed. There's still things I need to teach. My time has not yet come. He understands God's timing is absolutely perfect. And he is patiently waiting to follow the instructions of his father. The second thing he clarifies is Jesus expects to be hated. This is a very powerful testimony that Jesus gives. He goes, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Here's what he says. He looks at his brothers and he says, look, you can go to the festival. You're going to fit in. They're going to celebrate. You're going to be, people are going to talk to you. People are going to hug you because you're a part of the world. You're in the world. Me, Jesus, I'm not in this world. I'm, not, I'm in the world, but I'm not of this world. This world's not my home. And they're going to hate me because I call evil, evil. Jesus is going to tell the truth. And we like, I mean, we're, we're just like this, aren't we? Our culture has not much different. Nobody likes to be told they're evil. Nobody likes to be told that activity is evil. Nobody likes to talk about the evilness. And when Christians point it out, we're hated for it. By the way, Jesus says they hated me, they'll hate you. Now Jesus, he does this with grace, he does it with truth, he does it with compassion, he doesn't beat anybody on the head with the Bible, but he still calls evil, evil. For Christians and people out there who say, oh, Jesus is all love, he would never condemn or confront anybody. Well, we're going to see that in a couple near near the beginning of chapter 8, that he absolutely confronts sin. And he absolutely calls evil, evil. And he says here himself, they don't like me because I tell them their mistakes. I walk around, I look at these Pharisees who think they're perfect, and I say, hey, you're a sinner. What you're doing is evil. And through all of this clarification, what he's ultimately saying to his brothers is I'm the Messiah. I'm equal with God. I follow God's timing. I call sin, sin, but I love people enough to save them. And that even though my time has not yet come, it's going to come. And I'm going to hang on a cross, and they're going to put nails in my hands, they're going to put nails in my feet, and I'm going to utter out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He is clarifying to his brothers that he is here to save the world. That he is the Messiah. And that he loves them. You say, well, where do you see that he loves them? It looks like he's being confrontational with them. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. He loves them enough to say, you're wrong. This is who I am. You can continue to read. Uh, The brothers do go up to the festival. 
interesting enough, we'll talk about next week, Jesus actually does go to the festival. But what I want you to take away this morning is that Jesus wants you to make a profession of faith. He wants you to be close to him for sure, but he wants to make sure you know who he really is in your heart. And he wants to make sure you're following him for the right reasons. So have you made a decision to follow Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, this morning we ask that you would convict us of the truths in this passage. That you would reveal to us our hearts. We pray that the Spirit would work in this place and that we would ask the question, have we truly been saved? Have we truly made the decision to follow you or have we just been playing church for all these years? But at the same time, Father, I pray that you would give assurance to those who have made that decision. That you would put it on their hearts that even though they're not perfect, even though they make mistakes, that they are saved, they are born again, and they have life. And Father, help those to respond who need to respond this morning. We also pray for those who have not yet made a decision in our families, in our community, in our workplaces, that you would, uh, those who aren't here, Father, that you would in some way work in their lives so that they would uh, be convicted of their sins and that they would decide to follow you at their homes, at their workplaces, on the street, walking, wherever, Father. Call these people that we love into a relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.